0: Hello and welcome to Being Well. I'm Forrest Hansen. So today I'm actually not joined by Dr. Rick Hansen, and instead I'm joined by an expert on interpersonal communication, Dr. Jenny Rozier. Dr. Rozier is an associate professor of communication studies at James Madison University, the director of the Relationships, Love, and Happiness Project, and the author of two books, Make Love, Not Scrapbooks, and Finding the Love Guru in You. She focuses much of her teaching and research on the communication skills needed to maintain healthy romantic and parent-child relationships. So Dr. Rozier, thank you so much for joining me today. How are you doing?
1: I'm doing great. Thank you for having me.
0: Yeah, it's great to have you. We've done one episode in the past, dedicated specifically to attachment theory, and people seemed very interested in it. So I kind of wanted to explore that territory more with you today. The topics definitely come up on the podcast a number of times, but for anyone who might be new or maybe missed those, could you start by offering kind of a general summary of what attachment theory is and why you've chosen to focus your work there?
1: Yes, so attachment theory helps explain the bond between child and a primary caregiver. It was developed by a man named John Bowlby in the 1940s. And if you want to think about what the 1940s were like, the person that he was studying was mom. Mm -hmm. So when he said primary caregiver, he meant infants or children and their mothers. So he was looking at the relationship between mothers and children. Modern attachment theory, though, we really do look at the bond between children and any significant adult in their life. So mom, dad, childcare provider, nanny, grandmother, aunt, uncle, anyone who's an adult in their life who spends a significant amount of time with the child and and an adult who has done the attachment work to build that relationship with them. So attachment theory talks about how from birth... And many researchers would argue in utero, mm. attachment relationships are created between a child and their primary caregiver. And it's based on the consistency of the responses that are given to infants during times of distress. So an infant cries, the parent responds in a quick, sensitive, loving way, Mm. in a consistent manner. So every time the child cries, they respond to them in a consistently loving way. And then over time, through these patterns of development, an attachment bond is created and children begin to view themselves in a positive way, to view other people in a positive Mm. way, Mm -hmm. and to view relationships as worthwhile. Oppositely, if these attachment bonds are not secure. If they are insecure, children can grow to believe that they are not that great, maybe even that they are bad, or they are not worthy of love, or they're not lovable. They cannot trust other people. So other people aren't good. Other people are not trustworthy. And or they could begin to believe that relationships are not worthwhile because you know they never work out. The people give up on them. And so it's not worth getting into a relationship. Interestingly, the attachment bonds that are created in the first three years of life create an attachment style. So, the research would call it an attachment style. I like to call it an attachment style foundation because it is malleable. It's not an attachment style that's set in stone. And so, for the first three years of life, an attachment foundation is created and then children carry that attachment style foundation with them for the rest of their Mm. lives, impacting Mm -hmm. how they form, maintain, and even end friendships and romantic relationships through adulthood.
0: Mm. Okay, so getting into that a little bit, what are some of the different attachment styles? You indicated kind of two big families. You said secure and then you said...
1: Insecure.
0: Insecure. So what does some of the different attachment styles look like and what are some of the kind of everyday features of them that they might mm-hmm. have in relationship?
1: So they're going to look different depending on who we're looking at. Are we looking at toddlers and young children? Or are we looking at middle childhood or teenagers or adults? So if we're if we're talking about infants and toddlers, securely attached infants and toddlers feel that they can trust their primary caregiver. They feel that their primary caregiver is good, and that manifests into this idea that other people are good. And so they're more willing to venture away from mom. That doesn't mean they're taking a plane to France. It means <laughs> that when you're in a play date, baby is crawling or walking, baby is willing to move a few feet away from you and play away from you. But Just because they don't move away from you doesn't mean that they're not secure, right? So a lot of times I'll talk to moms groups and they'll say, yeah, but my baby always wants to sit on my lap during the mom group. And I say, yeah, but you're in a totally scary environment that they're not used to. And even the most secure baby isn't necessarily going to venture away. So if you are in a place that feels safe to the child, a secure child will then be able to venture away. Now, if on their travels they experience something distressful, like a dog barks or a piece of furniture in your own home is out of place, then they might retreat. They might visually retreat. So look back at you just for some reassurance and you say, It's okay, baby, I'm right here. Or they might physically retreat to you and need a hug or need to sit on your lap for the next 20 minutes. Mm -hmm. But Even a securely attached child, when they experience distress, they are going to retreat back to Mm -hmm. mom when they feel like they need her because or dad or grandma or the nanny because they feel... Because the the whole point of attachment is that you've created this relationship with this child so that when they experience distress, they know that they can go to you to help them downregulate that stress. So a, a toddler can't downregulate their own stress. Many, hell, many adults can't downregulate their own stress.
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. What I think is so interesting about this is that scaling this forward from toddler age or young child mm-hmm. age into adulthood, you can start to see examples of like something like that, even a securely attached person might look like inside of their adult relationships, like a version of that looking yeah. back over the shoulder to see the parent um, can definitely manifest in our kind of interpersonal relationships too.
1: Oh yeah. To make, make sure your partner is nearby. We, we, uh, people in healthy, secure marriages, they still want to be near their partner. They're comfortable with independence. So there's that venturing out, they're comfortable with independence, but they also are comfortable with intimacy and dependency and being interconnected with their romantic partner. Whereas maybe Mm. an insecure adult might worry that their partner is going to leave them. Mm -hmm. Every once in a while, sometimes they are consumed by it, or they might worry that their partner is cheating on them and, and then they express some jealousy Or they could go the other way and feel like they don't need a partner to be happy and avoid getting close in relationships. So the attachment bonds in childhood go go through middle childhood and teenage land and uh, young adulthood (laughs) into adulthood. And they manifest into this combination of attachment avoidance and attachment anxiety. And those two ideas cross to create some adult attachment styles.
0: Yeah, that makes total sense. So to get into that for a moment, we kind of covered securely attached, moving into the insecurely attached styles. You've got these two different variables that you just mentioned, which was anxiety and avoidance. And my understanding is that the three kind of insecure styles are different combinations on the meter, if you will, of those two different things. Like how loud are they turned up to? So would you mind describing them and kind of walking us through again what those look like practically?
1: Sure. So in adult attachment, so you you first have to think about avoidance and anxiety as being on a continuum. Mm -hmm. So some people have really high anxiety, relationship attachment anxiety, and some people have really low, but most of us fall somewhere in the middle. Same with avoidance. Some people have really, really high avoidance. Some people have really, really low, but most of us fall somewhere in the middle. So the four attachment styles tend to be described in terms of the extreme ends of the continuum. So while one person might be very securely attached because they experience low anxiety and low avoidance. Another person might be like mostly securely attached with, you know, moderately low anxiety and moderately low avoidance. So it's all on a continuum. It's not like people nicely fit into one of the four categories. A lot of times people have a predominant adults have a predominant category of their attachment and then they have tendencies in one of the other ones you know mm-hmm. so securely attached is low anxiety and low avoidance high anxiety and high avoidance is called fearful avoidant some research just researchers will just say fearful and some call it fearful avoidant but these people have high anxiety so they're really nervous about being in a relationship and high avoidance So they want intimacy, like in their head, they want a relationship, they want intimacy, but they tend to have a difficult time trusting other people. And sometimes it's so scary when they're in a relationship that they just can't do it. So they don't.
0: There's both kind of a pulling toward and a pushing away is what you're describing.
1: So there's Mm -hmm. a dissonance that can cause like a good amount of stress in that individual. They have a desire for intimacy and a fear of sharing emotions. And then those things like work against each other. Like I want to be in a relationship. I want to get close to this person, but whoa, this is really scary. And Mm -hmm. I can't really trust other people. What if they judge me? What if they, you know, so they're going back and forth in their head. Interestingly, all of the attachment styles, I like to tell my students that if you don't remember anything about the four adult attachment styles, understand where that attachment style falls on the anxiety continuum, on the avoidance continuum, and then how it impacts your view of yourself and your view of others. And so with a fearful avoidant, they tend to have negative opinions of themselves and negative opinions of others. So Mm -hmm. I'm not that great. I'm not that lovable. Why would anybody want to love me? But other people aren't that great either. (laughs) And other people can't be trusted. Fearful avoidant people, a lot of times people think that means that they don't get in relationships. No, they do. They're just stressed out a lot in them. Mm -hmm. So another attachment style is a anxious or anxious preoccupied. And this person has high anxiety and low avoidance. So this is your stage five clinger. So these people want a relationship very bad. They want to move it forward very quickly. A lot of researchers will say things like, oh, anxious, avoidant people put their relationships in the express lane. They move things really fast. They have high self-disclosure, high emotional availability. The big reason why they do that is because they have a low opinion of themselves and a high opinion of others. So think about how that works. Everyone else is amazing and wonderful, I'm terrible. I'm unlovable. I'm not worthy of a relationship. So I better sink my claws in before they figure it out how terrible I am. So, right. So when I get in a relationship with this person and everybody's better than me, so everybody's Mm, great, mm -hmm. everybody's wonderful. So I'm going to find one of them who I can trick into (laughs) getting to fall in love with me. Right. So I'm going to disclose very quickly. I'm going to compliment a lot. I'm going to do lots of things for this person so that I can make them like me before they realize how terrible I am. Mm-hmm. And then okay. that relationship is consumed by when are they going to find out? Are gonna, once they find out, they're going to leave me. The other shoe is going to drop at some point. They're going to cheat on me when they find someone better because everyone else is better. And so they're going to find someone and they're going to leave me. And so there's a lot of anxiety in this kind of relationship because they're just so worried that their partner is going to figure out they're not that great. And they're going to leave them for someone else who's better.
0: So that's high anxiety, low avoidance. So we've done two of them. We've done high, high, and then high anxiety, low avoidance. For the So for the final one, it's high avoidance and low anxiety. Is that correct?
1: Yes. And this is called the dismissive person. So this person is your friend that says, I don't need a man to be happy, right? <laughs> or I'm going to be a bachelor for life, right? It's the person who... And, and a lot of times they will say these things out loud as if to let people know that they're okay, right? And so they have really low anxiety. They don't worry about people cheating on them. They don't worry about people leaving them, but they also have high avoidance. So they either avoid relationships at all costs or when they get in them, they keep them superficial. They keep them at a certain level and they, and they can't get any more intimate than some predetermined level that they've come up with, depending on the amount of avoidance they feel. And the reason for that is because they think that they are awesome. So they view themselves really positively and they view other people negatively. So no one's ever going to meet their standards, right? And so this is a coping mechanism for dismissive people sometimes is that they will create a list in their head and they'll tell other people about it. Like if I'm going to be serious with someone, they have to meet all these criteria. Oh, well, they're not meeting my standards and my standards are really high and I'm not going to settle. And so you'll hear people say things like that. And so a dismissive person will either avoid relationships or they'll be in some superficial relationships. Or if they get in a serious relationship, or even if they get married, they try to not make, maybe they put up a brick wall when they're talking about serious subjects or they avoid serious subjects because they just don't want to talk about them.
0: They might have a hard time integrating their partner's needs into kind of their conceptualized worldview. Maybe they're a little bit selfish in terms of some of their choices. What I think is really interesting here, doctor, is that we're talking about kind of The volume knob turned up to 10 Mm -hmm. on all of these four different categories a little bit. And yeah, and we've done a series on pathology of different kinds, including narcissism, BPD, whatever it might be. And it's important to understand here, as it is there, that there are kind of two versions of these things. There's the turned up to 10 version, and then there's the kind of everyday version. So you might be listening to this right now as a listener and going, wow, none of these really sound like me. They all sound a little extreme. And then it's like, well, okay, but pause for a second. And try to find the elements, the seeds yeah. inside of each of these descriptors that could be resonant for you. Maybe you don't push everyone away, but you like to keep your optimal distance. Or maybe you're not totally anxious and preoccupied with your partner, but you start to feel uncomfortable whenever you have to kind of share something that you think might upset them. Yeah, You know, things like that could be little indicators, little seeds that may be one of these styles is a fit for you. So, talking about that, what can people do to try to kind of self-diagnose what their attachment style might be?
1: So, for me, I think that it really boils down to that how do you view yourself and how do you view other people? I think that's a great first starting point. And then go to that attachment style. So, if you view yourself as amazing and you view other people as bad, and so let me let's let's go into what some of those things inside your head sound like, right? So you view other people as bad. So most people are going to say like, no, I don't really do that. But have you ever felt yourself thinking, I can't. other people can't be trusted? Or I don't want to tell people everything about myself because they could judge me, right? Or everybody would screw you over if they had the chance. People who view other people positively look at people as good intentioned. Right. So I view people positively. I think that everyone on the planet is good intentioned. Does that mean that if you screw me over, that I still think that you're good intentioned? No, I'm not an you know, I'm not a blind idiot. Like I I definitely will say, okay, you specifically (laughs) were not good intentioned. But if I don't know you, if you haven't proven me wrong yet, I honestly believe that people have good intentions. And a lot of this is based on your experiences, which feeds into your mental frameworks and your attachment style. So I would start there. And I think that's a... you know, Think about how you view people, how you view yourself. If you think that relationships are valuable or not valuable, like they're worthwhile or they're not worth it at all. And that is a really great starting point. And then go to that attachment style and say, okay, so maybe, maybe you're not totally dismissive. But in romantic relationships, you're kind of dismissive and kind of fearful, avoidant. But in friendships, you're secure and kind of dismissive, right? So we don't all fit into one of these categories precisely. And like you you were saying, these are extreme examples, right? There's the stage one clinger or the stage ten or whatever. But (laughs) you know, not everybody is that. But some people have some clinginess issues. You know, it's
0: all. It's a complicated soup, is what you're indicating here. And a lot of what we're trying to do is kind of draw these broad categories as kind of indicators of behavior and different styles of behavior and suggestions of like what might be useful to you. Because, of course, the kind of point here in all of this sort of diagnostic work is to understand what your individual strengths and weaknesses are in relationship. What are the things that really trigger you? And what are the things that you're really more comfortable with? So, something you said there that I thought was interesting is you suggested that we might be able to attach differently to different kinds of people or different groups of people. So you mentioned your attachment style is being defined in childhood as in relationship to a quote-unquote primary caregiver. Yes. Whoever that might be. Can you attach to your mom differently than you attach to your dad differently than you attach to your best friend down the street?
1: So in infancy you can definitely attach differently to different parents, right? So let's say that you are a baby and you have a mom and a dad and a grandma who's around a lot, right? And who does a lot of the childcare. You can form secure attachment bonds with all three of those people. You can also form secure attachment bonds with two of them and a less secure attachment bond. Maybe mom loses her temper more when you're in distress and she's not you know, capable of calmly responding to you every single time. I also think it's important to note sometimes parents will ask me, oh, well, you know, I have screamed at my baby before. Is he is his life ruined? No. (laughs) (laughs) No. This is about mental frameworks are developed in your brain based on patterns of behavior. So if you look at the overall picture of how you generally respond to your baby do you generally respond in a sensitive loving way now does that mean that once a week you can lose your mind no that's probably too much with an infant but um you know there you can have some some mistakes here and there we are all doing the best we can with what we have and unfortunately if we have any childhood trauma or any attachment issues in our past sometimes Hearing a baby in distress can trigger that, and it becomes really impossible for us to adequately respond in a sensitive way. So, one of the things that I will talk to lots of young people about is before you have children of your own, really work on dealing with some of the, you know, maybe trauma or sh- toxic stress that you experienced as a young child or some attachment issues that you believe you have before. You know, taking that dive and raising your own kids.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think that's great advice. And there are kind of these two warring impulses a little bit. The first one that I would say is sort of the repetition compulsion, which is talked about in psychology, how, you know, the, the children tend to repeat the sins of the parents and so on and so on through generations. And then, secondarily, this interesting thing where even if you are an insecurely attached person, if you're somebody who had a problematic childhood experience, Then you grow up and you become a parent. It's not uncommon to be able to reforge secure bonds in your own life due to having a really positive relationship with the child. By becoming somebody that that child can securely attach to, you can kind of fill yourself up again with the resources that you need to sort of heal those old wounds. So it's kind of the sort of push-pull between those two dynamics, how we do have a bit of that compulsion to keep on doing the problematic things while also having these really great opportunities for healing. So it's which one of those impulses wins out in your life is a matter up to a lot of factors, including individual effort and knowledge and understanding. But there are definitely those two weights in play.
1: Yeah, and I think it's important to also note that when you are an infant, you don't have many choices on who you can yeah. have as a primary caregiver. It's whoever you're around a lot.
0: Yeah, you're stuck with them.
1: Yeah, you're kind of stuck. And you're really kind of stuck most of childhood. Maybe you have a teacher in elementary school who does some attachment work and really does some emotion coaching with you and becomes an attachment figure for you. But unfortunately, a lot of elementary, middle, and high school teachers have too much on their plate to do that with all of their students. But you could create more attachment figures as you age. So maybe your uh, parents were your attachment figures figures when you were young and they it was kind of a rocky you know attachment bond but then when you get a little older maybe in middle school you find an attachment figure in a friend's parents or you find an attachment figure in an uncle that's decided that he wants to really be a part of your life or you you know Your grandparents move closer to where you were living, and then you really form an attachment bond with a grandparent. And then as you turn into an adult and you start to get into some serious romantic relationships, your attachment figure shifts from your parent or the coach or the old teacher or the friend's parents to your romantic partner. And so, yes, if you had insecure attachment relationships your whole life, Mm. And then you marry someone or you get in a serious committed relationship with someone and you start to earn banked security you 100% can become a securely attached person. And so you know all of this is malleable. It is not set in stone. Is it harder to Earn security if you have severe attachment issues from childhood. Yes, it's going to be harder, but it is not at all impossible.
0: That's great to hear. And I think that it's a very... Hopeful and positive note, just in general, for people to be aware of that they're not kind of stuck with the baggage of their childhood. Exactly. I would I mean, I'd be more than happy to spend another hour living in the living in the developmental psychology world with you here. (laughs) Uh, There's some things I want to get into. I want to kind of kick it forward into more of our adult relationships. But as a big summary of everything we just talked about, there are these four different attachment styles. One of them is quote-unquote secure. The others are insecure in different ways. These are based off of childhood experiences, which have an impact on us. One of the big themes of this podcast is the importance of childhood experiences and what we can do in adulthood to work with those childhood experiences. But okay, we're in adulthood. You've looked at some of the flags and you go, okay, maybe I'm a little on the dismissive side, or maybe I'm a little on the anxious side, or maybe I'm a little on the whatever side, whatever it might be for you. Are some of these attachment styles more compatible with each other in terms of adult relationships than others? I would imagine that if you're securely attached, you're kind of compatible with everyone, (laughs) but most people aren't securely attached. So, what do those kind of pairings look like practically in the adult realm?
1: The most compatible romantic relationships is a secure person with a secure person. So, clearly, that's the number one recipe for success. But close behind it is at least one person has to be secure. And the other person can be any of the other insecure, even severely insecure. As long as one person is is secure, has secure attachment bonds with other adults in their life and has grown up that way, they can definitely have a happy, healthy relationship with someone who is one of the insecure attachment styles. So if we a lot of times researchers will categorize adult attachment by avoidant attachment styles and anxious. So anxious preoccupied is clearly the anxious one and then fearful avoidant many times gets grouped in with a avoidant attachment style. So dismissive and fearful go into the avoidant realm. So a anxious person and an anxious person can work <laughs> but it's going to be difficult.
0: Yeah, there's going to be a lot of "Do you love me?" Yes, there. yeah.
1: but it kind of can work because if they both understand where that anxiety is coming from, because they feel it themselves, mm. then as long as both of them are willing to do a lot of reassuring and spend a lot of time with each other, which if they are both anxious, preoccupied, then they probably want to do that, then they have the ability to be successful. It is far less likely that they will be successful than the other examples. But it's totally doable. Mm -hmm. Two avoidant people, again, doable, but they likely are going to look more like a roommate relationship Mm -hmm. than the typical romantic marital relationship that we are used to understanding. But maybe that will work for them right? They both Mm -hmm. want their independence. They'll get emotional closeness if and when they want it. But from the outside looking in, it will likely look like two buddies that got married. But the relationship that is not going to work is an Mm. avoidant person with an anxious person. It could be so difficult to make that work. One person is pushing, the other person is pulling. One person is angry about not being left alone and having some independence. The other person is like, why don't you love me? Please, what are you doing? You're going to leave me. And they're so upset. It's not a good recipe for a healthy relationship.
0: Yeah. And I wanted to kind of point to that. I'm glad that you did because I think that that combination of the avoidant person and the anxious person is in some ways our kind of most troped about relationship, mm-hmm. at least in the Western world, where you have classically, you have the avoidant man yep. who is kind of distancing, establishing space, pushing the other away, saying, uh, you know, do I really want to be here? Combined with the anxious woman, yep. again, to use kind of the gender stereotypes, excessively clingy, searching for love, trying to fill the hole in the heart. And I mean, geez, just speaking personally for a second, I have definitely seen that relationship inside of my friend group. And I think we all have. And I think, doctor, you're really pointing to the kind of key problem inside of it where from one person, there's this constant kind of thirst for approval and love and the other person is just so unwilling to give it.
1: Yes. I mean, the dismissive person or the avoidant person, they don't want to tell, even if they do love you, They don't want to tell it to you 70 times a day. And if you are highly anxious, you need it to feel safe. This whole thing boils down to the desire to feel safe. We want to feel safe. And the anxious person only feels safe when they are told over and over that everything is okay and that reassurance is happening. If you are a secure person with an anxious person, You have to be willing to do that, you know. And if the relationship is worth it, guess what? It's just you telling them how you feel. And you're as a secure person, you're comfortable with your emotions. You should be totally fine with Mm -hmm. you know giving them stroking your partner and telling them that you love them all the time. But the dismissive person is like, "Oh my gosh, I said I love you last week.
0: (laughs) I can't do it. (laughs) Do we really have to do this (laughs) again? It's wonderful to kind of have the idea that we would always have one secure person inside of a relationship. But as we know, that is often not the case. So let's say that you've done a little internal searching and you've gone, you know what, I've got some anxious tendencies. Or you know what, I've got some avoidant tendencies. Moving into practice, what are some of the things that somebody can do to either work with their own attachment style and maybe kind of fill that hole in the heart a little bit? or honestly, to help their partner kind of do the same?
1: Yeah, so I think there's a lot of things that you can do. And a lot of them are based specifically on which attachment style you are, which attachment style your partner is. So the first thing that anyone can do is educate themselves about their attachment. So educate yourself about attachment in general. Educate yourself about your dismissive attachment, your fearful attachment, your secure attachment, your anxious attachment. Or if it's your partner that you feel is having some attachment issues, educate yourself on that kind of attachment. And there are entire amazingly written by experts in the attachment uh, field, popular press books that are dedicated to each kind of attachment. So educate yourself. That's the first thing. And then you're going to have to really... (laughs) Do some soul searching and think about why you have these attachment tendencies or these attachment problems and address them like with a therapist or if they're extreme or, you know, journal about it. There are ways that you, I mean, you have to come to terms with some things that depending on the level of avoidance or the level of anxiety that you have, And start viewing yourself in a positive way if you don't do that already. Start viewing other people in a positive way. Start viewing relationships in a positive way. And again, a therapist can help you with that. Reading a lot of self-help books dedicated to the subject can help you with that. Taking a class can help you with that. There's lots and lots of things. On my blog, I have an article written for each of the attachment styles where i give very specific instructions <laughs> for if if you have a dismissive style you can do a b and c if your partner is dismissive you can do a b and c things for the dismissive style things like if you are dismissive then you can become self aware think carefully about what you avoid in terms of emotional or physical closeness right so like think about those things like what is it that Bothers me. Why do I move away from my partner? Is it the actual touching of another person, and why am I so, you know, upset about that? Why? Mm. Why do I not want to sit next to him or her? You know, and so start thinking about those things. If you're dismissive, you need to actively try to carve out quality time for your partner because if you don't actively try, it's your tendency to just go do stuff by yourself.
0: It's it's never going to happen yes. if you're not doing it intentionally. Yeah.
1: And so you have to like intentionally work on carving time out of your daily schedule, whether it's texting or phone or face-to-face, but daily schedule. You can say things like, it's hard for me to talk about my feelings. And explain to your partner mm. why it's hard mm-hmm. for you to talk about your feelings. If you don't know why it is, think about why it is right? You know, was it a specific thing that happened when you were younger? A lot of times people who have, who unexpectedly, not that we ever expected, but who quickly or unexpectedly lost a parent when they were younger tend to move towards some dismissive tendencies. And so understand if this happened to you and you have dismissive tendencies, that it's likely because you don't want to get too close to someone else because people leave. People People leave by leaving or people leave by dying and life is fragile and you know it's not worth get-
0: why would i ever get too attached yeah
1: yeah why would i get so attached to you so think about why you do these things and explain them just come out and say it learning about attachment for me is about improving your empathy Right. So when you learn about why you behave certain ways, why you do certain things, and you learn why your partner behaves in certain ways and why your partner does certain things, it allows you to be more empathetic. Oh, he doesn't want to talk about when we're going to have kids because, oh, I remember his dad died when he was little and that's really hard. And you know, this is a hard conversation for him. And so then you can... I mean, when you have that knowledge... You're, you're, because I think that the, the go to is, oh, he doesn't want to talk to me about having kids because he's not serious about our relationship. And, you know, he doesn't want to have kids and I want to have kids. And then it's like this level of anger. <laughs> and you go straight to angry and then a conflict could ensue. But if you have this knowledge about where this idea that your partner doesn't want to talk about serious things comes from, you're more willing to be gentle with
0: them. Yeah, absolutely. I think that your emphasis on empathy there is such an important Mm -hmm. kind of piece of the puzzle.
1: It's a huge piece.
0: (laughs) Yeah, no, absolutely. Because empathic relating is kind of the center of any sort of functional relationship. And what you're describing really with these different attachment styles is situations where people become very tunnel visioned in on their own experience and frankly, their own trauma to a certain extent, whether it was a soft trauma or it was a big trauma, whatever it might be, that that influenced us as we grew up, created a relational style, and we now kind of tunnel vision on that way of interacting with another person. The more that we can kind of break out of that framework, the more successful we're going to be. To kind of toss a few things on top of the pile that you've already mentioned here, A lot of what you were speaking to related to something that I know that Dr. Hansen likes to emphasize, which is the idea of forming a coherent narrative of your childhood. Mm -hmm. What was your childhood actually like, really, from the perspective of an outside observer? Was it really all, you know, fluffy and roses? Or were there really some things there that maybe you weren't aware of as a child that would have caused some real problems? Then secondarily, the value of just interoception looking inside your own mind, being kind of aware of your internal processes and where feelings are coming from. And then finally, the more that you form, as you've been saying, kind of secure bonds with people in adulthood, the more that you can kind of work to heal some of those childhood wounds. So, so those are three things I would just kind of layer yeah. on top of the great advice that you gave, which was more specific to attachment style that are kind of general notes for people who might be working with this uh, area.
1: Yeah, no, those are so great, so great.
0: Yeah, thank you. And so as kind of a wandering toward the end here, again, I I know we could spend a lot more time. Are there kind of communication patterns that you see in healthy, functional, happy relationships uh, between adults versus the ones that tend to be more unhealthy? To kind of put it another way, I'm trying to find my way to this question here what do good communicators look like? Like, what do they do differently from not great communicators other than having good empathy skills?
1: Yeah. So I, at JMU, I teach a class called attachment communication. And so we I teach them about attachment theory. We start from the cradle and end with the grave. And over 16 weeks, we... Every single lecture, talk about how. Now, how could this impact the way you communicate in a positive way or a negative way? And so attachment is key to impacting how we communicate. People in securely attached relationships don't tend to question their partner's love for them. Mm. They don't tend to use or use love or love expression as a manipulative tool. So they wouldn't say well if you don't do this you know I'm not going to love you or if you don't do this we're going to end you know they don't give ultimatums. People in good relation, good healthy relationships securely attached relationships ultimatums are not part of their vocabulary. <laughs> they don't tend to engage in communication that Indicates that they don't trust their partner or that they are not trustworthy. So a lot of attachment issues impact the way we trust people and impact how we communicate with those people. In childhood, it might manifest in impacting a four year old's willingness to ask a stranger at the library, could you get me that book? Right. A insecurely attached child would say, no, there's no way I'm going to go talk to that stranger because people are bad and this place is not a safe world to be in, so I'm not going to risk it. So a lot of times in childhood, attachment issues manifest into a lack of communication. So a unwillingness to communicate with people they don't know, or expressing their opinions, or expressing their emotions. Whereas a securely attached child would be willing to go and ask the stranger for a book, would be willing to go up to a a kid on the playground and say, do you want to play with me? It's not scary for them to ask, do you want to play with me? Whereas an insecurely attached child would say, oh no, I can't ask that. So those seem like really simple examples, but hey, that works in adult relationships too, right? So an insecurely attached person might not be willing to have that conversation that starts a relationship, right? Because it's just too scary to go talk to this new person. An insecurely attached person, when they are in a relationship, might not want to share their feelings about certain things or tell their partner about themselves. So they don't want to self-disclose. Or when they do self-disclose, they self-disclose superficially, right? So people in securely attached relationships tend to self-disclose at a Normal, whatever that means. Um, rate, <laughs> <laughs> right? They they self-disclose it at an acceptable, appropriate speed. They talk about intimate things at appropriate times. They're willing to give their opinions about things without being worried that the other person is going to judge them for their opinions or not like them for their opinions, right? So a securely attached person can also read the situation and say, oh, well, maybe I shouldn't say this right now, or maybe I should say this right now. So yes, I 100% believe that attachment can positively or negatively impact your communication skills, especially in relationships if we only talk about your willingness to start the conversation that alone is huge so that would indicate that securely attached people are more willing to go start relationships to for friendships or for romantic relationships or go talk to the teacher in college you know and come to come talk to me when when you have an issue where an insecurely attached person that would could be too scary or not worth it or just not something that they're interested in doing
0: Yeah, I think that's a great point that you're making here toward the end, which is that it's natural when talking about attachment style to think about it in terms of just our romantic relationships Mm -hmm. or just our relationship with our parents or whatever it might be. But really, it's the whole thing. It's all of your interpersonal relationships can have some influence upon them by this kind of core attachment style. So. Finally, based on all of the work that you've done, which has been really extensive here with regards to attachment theory, relationships, and so on, so much of what we've been talking about is about the kind of developmental process. You know, what's it like to be you, particularly as a child or a young adult? So if you had the opportunity to kind of go back in time and see yourself at... I, I'm kind of intuitively thinking like 12 years old for you, uh-huh. but who knows, you know, a younger person, uh, and you had kind of the opportunity to say something to that person, to leave them with something, whatever it might be, what would you want that to be? What would you want to say to them?
1: It's all going to be great.
0: <laughs> it's all going to work out in the end.
1: It's all yeah. going to work out. It always works out, and it, it will be it might suck for a while, but it will be great.
0: Yeah, I think that... That's it. <laughs> that's that's honestly on the short list of what I would want to tell myself, particularly <laughs> yeah. if I were landing in high school or something oh, like that. Oh, man. Definitely. You know, because teenagers can suck. You know, it can be, yeah, it can be really rough to go to school every day for a while. But just that reminder of, you know what, it's all going to work out in the end. Yeah. I think is a wonderful note. And it's a great piece of advice to kind of close the episode on. So, doctor, again, thank you so much for taking the time for doing this. Thank you. So, today I had the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Jenny Rozier. Our conversation focused on effective communication and attachment theory. We began the episode by talking about what the different attachment styles are and where they come from. Throughout the episode, we really emphasized the importance of childhood experiences and how our experiences during those developmental stages can really influence how we attach to others during adulthood. As a reminder, there are four different attachment styles. One of them is secure, and the other three are various forms of what's referred to as insecure attachment. The first is low anxiety, high avoidance, sometimes called dismissive or dismissive avoidant. Another, high anxiety, high avoidance, fearful or fearful avoidant. And then finally, high anxiety, low avoidance, which is referred to as anxious or anxious preoccupied. Each of the different styles looks a little bit different, practically speaking. Anxious people tend to be a bit clingier, to use the conventional language. While avoidant people tend to like to establish distance with others and not get too close. A lot of these styles are based on our relationship with are people good or not? And am I good or not? People who tend to have a relatively high view of themselves and a high view of others, I mean that in a positive way, not in an egotistical way, tend to be more secure while those who question whether or not people are good or whether or not they themselves are fundamentally good tend to be a bit more insecurely attached. We spoke for a moment about what styles are more compatible with one another. Of course, two securely attached people can lead to a wonderfully healthy relationship, but all it really takes is one securely attached partner to give a relationship some pretty good chances of turning out pretty well. On the other hand, two anxious people or two dismissive people can also make things work. It might be a little imperfect, but you can make things work. But one of the really challenging relationships is that between somebody with a more anxious attachment style and somebody with a more dismissive or avoidant attachment style. And what's unfortunate about this is that this is such a common pairing of people. And certainly in Western culture, it's one of the real tropes that we have around relationships. So learning how to work within that effectively or frankly, to avoid it if it's becoming a problem, can be a really, really helpful tool. Toward the end, we talked a bit about how to work with our own attachment style or how to work with our partners. And Dr. Rozier has a bunch of resources online focused on doing exactly that. And I'll be linking out to those in the description of today's podcast. Before we go, I'd like to let you know about Rick's new program, Just One Minute. If you'd like to start making real, positive changes to your brain and your life, but you don't have a lot of extra time, then just one minute is for you. It features 57 bite-sized practices that give you just one thing to focus on each day to make your life better, such as seeing the good in yourself, finding strength, feeling safer, and taking more breaks. You can watch or listen to them anywhere, and with lifetime access, you can revisit them again and again. For podcast listeners, we're offering a special discount to Just One Minute. If you enter the code BEINGWELL in all caps at checkout, it will give you 10% off of the purchase price. I was actually there when Rick was recording this program, and I really have to say I think that it's one of our best offerings. So if you're interested in learning more about Just One Minute, I've included a link to it in the description of today's podcast. So if you've been enjoying these episodes, I would really appreciate it if you would take a moment to leave a comment, maybe even a positive review. Hey, why not? And subscribe to it through the platform of your choice. It really does help us out. It's one of the best ways right now for you to support the podcast if you've been enjoying it. So until next time, thanks for listening.